Father, we just thank you for your goodness and your great love. We thank you for all that you've given us, Lord. In the midst of this crazy situation, this crazy time, Lord, we still have everything that we need. And Father, we are a blessed people. And we just thank you, Father, for that. Father, this morning as we come to your word, I pray that you would just open our hearts and open our, open our minds to receive what you have for us this morning. And Father, I pray that we will grow in you this morning, that we will have a, a greater revelation of who you are. And Father, I pray that our, our faith would increase, that our maturity level would increase, and then we would just grow closer to you. And we give you praise and thanks this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Hallelujah. Well, we're going to go ahead and continue on uh, talking about the Trinity this week. So last week, we kind of uh, did a general overview of the Trinity. We talked about the, the, the overarching uh, uh, doctrine of the Trinity. And you guys remember that, that there is only one God, but there are three persons. And I meant to put my little graphic up there again, but I forgot. But there's one God. Three different persons and the God who are all equally God. So Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Son, uh, we already said, is God, but he's still God, even though I said it twice. And the Holy Spirit is God. So the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they are all three equally God. They also are not equal to each other. So the Father is not the, the Son, who is not the Holy Spirit. Amen. So they're completely separate persons in one God. And I, <clears throat> I get that we don't have anything to compare that to, um, to, to relate that to in our own lives, but this is one of those things that we're going to look at the Word of God, this is what it teaches, and, and we're going to trust that, that God is right. How many know that when you have a choice of believing that you're right or God's right, that God is usually the one you should go with? And by usually, I mean always, <laughs> if there's any confusion. Always, God is the one that's right. Amen. So... Over the next few weeks, though, as we looked at the doctrine of the Trinity as a whole, we're going to look at each different person in the Trinity. And today we're going to look at, at God the Father. We're going to look at who He is, what is His role, and, and really just look into to what the Bible says about God the Father. And uh, first, you know, as we talked about, and it's something that we'll, we'll go over in Scripture again, but the Father is God. That's not something really anybody argues about. That's something that, that uh, even people that have different views on the doctrine of the Trinity, that's something that everybody agrees on. The Father is God. Um, one of the things we're going to learn about today, that of the, of the functions or the roles of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that the, the Father's role is, is typically uh, the superior function. He's the, 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 and what I mean by that is, is that um, in authority, he's the highest authority of the three. And we'll talk about that. We'll look at that in Scripture. If any of you are, are freaking out in your head right now, saying, well, God the Father is higher than the, the Son. Well, yeah, and that's what the Word says, and we're going to look at that today. Um, and we're going to learn that all authority comes from the Father. We're going to see that the Father is the creator of all things, that He created us, that we actually exist for His glory and for His pleasure. We're going to see that uh, the Father is the one that actually designed salvation. He's the one that put all that together. It's his plan. We're going to see that we're actually chosen by the Father. How many know it's a good thing to be chosen by the Father? Amen. Every single one of you are chosen. It's his mercy that allows us to be born again. It is he that receives our prayers. How many know that when you pray, you should typically be praying to the Father? I'm going to look at that. We're going to look at the reality that the Father loves us. How many know that's a good thing, that the Father loves us? Hallelujah. He's our comforter. He is compassionate. And the one that nobody likes, he's the one that disciplines us. Some of y'all need it. 
Don't worry, my hand's up on that one too. I need it from time to time. I know this one's actually not a bad thing. You actually see that when you, when you look at people when they lived their entire life and they never experienced discipline in their life. Those are usually the people that we, we don't think too highly of. Discipline is a good thing. We want to learn that each person has a completely different role in salvation as well. We're going to look at the Father. He's the one that designs salvation. We're going to, uh, over the next couple few weeks, we're going to look at the Son. He's the one who is actually the one who accomplishes salvation. So he carries out the Father's plan. And then we're going to look at the Holy Spirit, who is the one who is um, the, the executor or the one that applies salvation to our lives. Each person in the Godhead has a separate role. And as such, with separate roles, they have different levels of authority. We talked about that briefly. And, and, uh, and, and we'll actually be able to understand that because we see that in our lives as well. That's something we can actually relate to, is having equal things have different levels of authority. Amen? So let's go ahead and get started. And we're going to look at sec- or 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verses 5-6. through six. It says, for, thor- for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we are all things, through whom all are all things, and through whom we exist. So as I mentioned uh, earlier, we talked about it last week, I mentioned it briefly in the intro, is that uh, there is only one God. This is fully supported in Scripture. There is no contestation of that. This idea of the Trinity is not that, that Jesus and the Father and the Son are all God, but they're three different gods. That's, that's actually not what the Bible teaches. Um, there is only one God. And here it says, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom we are all things and through whom we exist. You'll notice something here. This says there's one God, and then it mentions the Father and Jesus. That's an interesting thing. Because there's, there's, there's an equating of the two. Both Jesus and the Father are God. And they actually, uh, we, we look at this, that the wording is very similar for them as well. But the Father is just one of the persons of the Godhead. He is equally God with the other three persons. And as we examine Scripture, not only we find that, that the Father is God, but we also find that He is the one who, who created all things. He says, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. So we see two things here. One, we see from Him all things exist. God the Father is the one that initiated creation. We also see that God is the one that sustains us all as well. Ephesians 4, 6 says, one God, that, that's saying again, one God, and Father over all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. God is the one who is over all, which is, means he has the highest level of authority, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. And he is through all, which means that everything that exists is through him, and it's, he sustains everything. Without the Father, nothing would exist, because nothing would have created. And without the Father, nothing would continue to exist. And you're also going to notice the same terminology. So we look at Ephesians 4, 6. It says that there's the one God and Father of all, speaking of God the Father, who is over all and through all and in all. But then we have Paul saying in 1 Corinthians that Jesus is the one through whom all things exist and through whom we exist. And we begin to see this, this uh, uh, reality 
And this, this evidence showing that, and, and this is just stuff to tuck away. We're going to go in great detail on Jesus is God. But we begin to see that the same uh, properties or the same roles, the same things are being applied to both. We're beginning to see that Jesus is also God. And the Father is God. And through them both, all things were created. But by the Father, all things were created. We're going to see in Scripture that through Jesus, all things were created but it was by the Father that all things were created. You're also going to see something that I find very interesting because I think there's a lot of confusion about this. Not only is it from whom are all things, but for whom we exist. See, this is interesting to me because God created us for Himself. He created us for Him. And it's not that He was lonely. How many know that God wasn't, before he decided to create the heavens and the earth and get everything kicked off, it wasn't because he was like, man, I, I can just really use some more people around. It's getting pretty boring up here, just me by myself. How many know that's not the case because it wasn't just him by himself? God has always had fellowship. That's why in Genesis it says, let us make man in our image. God has always been three persons. Three distinct individual persons at the same time. And I get it. We, it's hard for us to wrap our head around that because we're just one person at one time. And if you have more than one person in your head, then they take you to a mental facility. And it's not quite the same either because they don't all exist at the same time. So it's something we can't really relate to. It's difficult for us to relate to, but God has always been one God, three individual distinct persons in fellowship with one another. We're going to see that in a second as well. He has always had fellowship with the other two persons of God, so we weren't created to somehow fill a void or fill a hole for God. The reality is, is that you ever wondered why we're such social creatures? Why we like to be in fellowship with other people? Why the people that are, that are loners or hermits are actually the exception to the rule? You ever wondered why we're like that? Because we're made in His image. And one of the attributes of God is that he is in fellowship all the time. Like, we're social creatures because God is social. He always has been, even before us. Amen? In Isaiah 43, 7, it also says that we are made for his glory. Isaiah 43, 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. We were actually made to glorify God. That is your purpose. You ever wondered what's the purpose of life? Your purpose in life is to glorify God. Matter of fact, if you just look at your life and everything that you're doing is in some way glorifying God, then you are fulfilling your purpose. Because that's why you were made, was to glorify Him. You weren't glad to keep Him company. You weren't made um, as some sort of science experiment. You were made to show His glory and to give Him glory. We'll also see that we were made for His pleasure. And in Revelations 4.11, it says this, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things by your will. They existed and were created. We see that by His will, we exist and were created. In other words, He made us because He wanted to. How many of you get that? It was His will. He wanted to create us. We weren't a mistake. We weren't an accident. It was His purpose, His will to create us, to glorify Him. And I like the way the King James Version translated it. It says that we were created for His pleasure. That that area where it says, uh, uh, you created this by your will, we existed. The King James says, for your pleasure, we exist. We were made because God wanted us. And we were made to glorify Him. 
How many know that's an amazing thing? You are made to glorify God. Hallelujah. The next thing we want to look at for the God the Father is that all authority belongs to the Father. 1 Corinthians 15, 24-27. Then, then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under His feet. And when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. That's a mouthful, huh? Read that seven times real fast. See how it works out for you. I had a hard time doing it once. So Paul is speaking actually here. If you, if you uh, read a little bit before this, you're going to see that Paul is actually speaking of what Christ has accomplished by, by rising from the dead. He dies and he rises from the dead. And it's beginning to speak of, of what he has accomplished. And it says that he is the first fruits of them that slept, which means he is the first one to rise because we're all going to rise. How many know we're all going to rise from the dead one day? Amen. So he's the first fruit, and, and the reality is, is that death came through Adam, but life came through Christ. Christ made everyone alive in him, and when he returns, he's going to come with all rule and all authority and all power. And it says right here that after destroying every rule and every authority and power, because he's going to come with all of it, he's going to deliver the kingdom to God the Father. So this is Jesus delivering the kingdom to God the Father after destroying all authority and power. And it says the last enemy is to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So Jesus, when he comes back, he's going to come with all authority, all power. He's going to destroy every authority and power and rule on earth. He is going to be the top dog. Jesus is number one. He has all authority except for one thing. Paul says, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. That's talking about God the Father. God the Father is going to send Jesus to return and give him all authority because all authority comes from the Father and Jesus will have authority over every single thing except the Father. This is what Verse 27 is all about showing that God is still in control. God is still the supreme authority. And this is where we begin to see that, that even though all three persons of the Godhead are equally God, they're not equal in role or function, and they're not equal in authority. And we see that God the Father of the three persons is the highest authority. And we know this because one, it says here, talks about that he gives Jesus all authority except for authority over him. We also know that we're going to see in a little while that Jesus uh, is sent by the Father. How many know that the sending one is typically the one that has authority? And then we're also going to see that, that the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father when Jesus returns. So the, the Father of the three has the most authority. And now this is where things get crazy, especially in our society. This is where stuff gets confusing. Because we see that the Father is superior, superior in, regards, in this regard, particularly to authority. And we always equate authority with value. And in and, and this world, if you think about this, and this is where, where it starts to get hairy, because we see that they're all three equally God. There's no confusion about that. They are equally God. All three of them. But there is an authority level difference. Now in the church, how this plays out 
and to much uh, to many people's chagrin is women and men. Women and men are equal in the sight of God. There is no doubt about that. God sees us both the same, especially in regards to salvation. We are completely equal in the sight of God. Women and men, equal. But there is an authority structure in the body of Christ and in the household that puts men in authority over women. Does it mean that men are better than women? Absolutely not. Does it mean that women are somehow inferior? Absolutely not. Women and men in the sight of God are completely equal, but there is an authority structure. The same thing happens in the church when you talk about leadership in the church. I am no better than any single person in this room in the sight of God. I am equal in the sight of God to every single one of you, yet God has put me in a position of authority in the church. But so many people get upset about this because they, they equate value or equality to somehow this level of authority when it's not the same. Authority is necessary, but it doesn't make me better than you guys. It doesn't make men better than women. It doesn't mean any of those things, and it doesn't make the Father somehow better than Jesus or the Holy Spirit. They are all equally God, but there is an authority structure between the three. And we see that the Father has the highest level of authority. And we're also going to see they have separate roles as well. Typically, when you have different levels of authority, there's different roles that come along with that. In the household, the, the, the father is the, or the, the man is the head of the household. He's the spiritual leader. He has a different role. But interestingly enough, that means he has more responsibility, has more accountability as well. And the same is, is true in the church. The same is true at your job. The same is true at all of these things. Those with greater authority typically have greater responsibility. And if they don't, that means that there's an abuse or an imbalance happening. But we see that all authority comes from the Father. We're also going to see that the Father loves Jesus. And this is a really weird one, you know, because we have one person of the Godhead loving the other. And when I say, when I say stuff like this is really weird, understand me, I'm talking from a human perspective, um, not from a biblical perspective. You know, I'm talking from an outside looking in perspective. You know, if, if you were outside the church looking at the Trinity and, and trying to differentiate three persons and one God and one of them, you know, and they love each other, like that, that looks weird. That's what I mean by that. But we have here, it says that um, in John 17, 24 through 26, Father, I desire that also whom you have given me may be given with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That means that, that uh, note that, God the Father loved Jesus, the Son, before the earth was ever created, before the foundation, before everything. And he says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be, may be in them and I in them. You know, the... The Father loves Jesus. And this goes back to that idea that I was talking about earlier that we weren't created to fill some sort of void in God's life. God wasn't just really lonely or homesick or, or lacking in love because the, the, God loved, or the Father loved the Son. Before the foundation of the world, before uh, we were even an inkling in God's eye, to use a human expression, obviously God knew what he was going to do. But uh, before all of this happened, God loved Jesus. 
And this is one of those other things is that this is why we love. The Bible says that we love because he first loved us. This idea of love, I think uh, the book of John says that God is love. That this is, this is who God is. This is who the Father is. This is one of his attributes. This is why we love because we are, once again, we are made in his image. That's why we have to have love. That's why we seek it out. That's why we yearn for love and fellowship is because we are made in his image. And this is who God was even before all of this was created. This was who the Father was. And if you're one of those people that thinks, well, I'm just not really a loving person. Well, maybe you weren't before you got born again, but when you got born again, you were restored to the position that Adam was in. You were made in the image of God. All of that stuff has been restored, and you love because he loved. And if you're not being loving, that means you're fighting against who you are. So stop doing that. Be who you are in Christ. Amen? That's how you were made. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 16-17, we see the Father loves us too. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work in word. Not only does God love Jesus, but he loves you. How many know that's a good thing? I am so thankful that God loves me. Particularly when I'm being unlovable. You guys don't see it all that often, but there certainly are times. (laughs) <laughs> I am unlovely. But God loves me enemy. Enemy. Loves me anyway. <laughs> God loves me enemies too. <laughs> but <laughs> but God loves me. And this is amazing to me. The creator of everything, the highest authority in all of existence, loves me. How amazing is that? And because of this, he made a way so that we could have eternal comfort, so that this isn't it. So that we're not doomed to an eternity in torment away from God. He made a way that we could, he loved us and gave us eternal comfort. And good hope, how? Through grace. Grace is everything that was given to us through Jesus. It's everything that we didn't deserve God accomplished in Jesus and gave us. That means that he forgave us of all of our sins. We didn't deserve that. He went ahead and and. And, uh, and, and that was his mercy, not giving us what we deserved, but the grace is giving us, is not, is giving us what we didn't deserve. Man, keeping that all track in your head, that's hard remembering what word is which. But grace is giving us what we didn't deserve. We didn't deserve a second chance. We didn't deserve a new life. We didn't deserve Jesus coming and giving his life for us. We didn't deserve to be restored. We didn't deserve to be made holy. We didn't deserve to be made pure. But that was God's grace. Everything accomplished in Jesus Christ, he gave to us so that we would have eternal comfort with him. That's God's love for us is amazing. And, and this love is not just this like super fas- superficial passing love either. In Matthew 10, 29-30, it says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. God loves us so much that he knows every single detail about us, even down to the number of hairs that are on your head. And we can be comforted in knowing that, that God cares for, like we said, the, the, the sparrows that are sold for a penny, basically saying they have no value, that God cares for them. And if God is going to care for something that really doesn't have any value, how much more so is he going to love and care for us 
who has such a great value that he knows everything about us. He cared so much about us that the Father would send his Son to die the death that we deserve, to pay the penalty that we should have paid so that we can have eternal comfort with him. That's the kind of love that God has for you. The kind of love the Father has for you. That's an amazing thing to me. And kind of in a rapid-fire succession, so we don't run out of time here, uh, there's a bunch of other things that I want to share with you guys. One, Colossians 1.3, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Did you know that the Father is the one that we, we should be praying to? The Father is the one that hears and receives our prayers. Now, to be clear, there are specific times when, when I pray to, to Jesus or I pray to the Holy Spirit. When I'm, I'm speaking to them specifically for things. When I want the Holy Spirit to fall upon this church and people to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, I'm praying, Holy Spirit, come. Amen? When I want to, to glorify Jesus and thank Him for what He's accomplished, I, I say thank you to Him. But typically when we're praying, our prayers go to the Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. When you're praying for the people around you, when you're praying for provision, when you're praying for any of those things, we pray to the Father. And this is actually what, what, Luke, or what Jesus instructed the disciples in Luke. In Luke 11, 2-4, he says, And He said to them, When you pray, say this, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us this, each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive ourselves. Forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. This template, this pattern of how we should pray starts with pray to the Father. So typically, and probably primarily, the one who receives and hears your prayers is the Father. That's one of his roles. In James 1.17, it says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Once again, we see the Father, whom there is no variation of shadow due to change. Every good gift, every blessing that you have in your life comes from the Father. The Father is the one that is giving those things to you. You ever wonder why these gifts are qualified? Instead of saying every gift is from the Father, it says every good gift. And every perfect gift is from the Father. Anybody ever wonder why those things are qualified? Because there's other people that will give you gifts that aren't good, that aren't perfect. You know, one of the things that we get confused about when we, we look at what's happening in people's lives, when we see things that we assume are blessing, we assume that it's God giving to them. And this leads to all sorts of confusion. When we look at people in, in Hollywood that are famous, these, these movie stars that are just in so many ways, awful people. And we wonder, why are they so blessed? Why do they have so much? And the problem is, is, is we're confused. We're assuming that every gift that they have is a good gift or a perfect gift, but it's not. How many know that if the devil can get you away from God by giving you stuff, that's what he's going to do? The Bible says that, that uh, every blessing from the Lord makes rich and adds no sorrow to it. If you're being blessed in such a way that it's adding sorrow to your life, then it's not a blessing from God. When we look at Robin Williams, who from the outside looking in had everything. He should have been happy. There shouldn't have been depression. There shouldn't have been anything. He had everything he could have wanted from the outside looking in, but that wasn't enough. And every gift that he was given, the money, the drugs, and all that stuff, man, he has everything, was actually a curse to him. It wasn't a gift. And that's where we get confused. 
That's why it's very dangerous to begin to compare your lives to other people because you have no idea what's going on in there. You have no idea if that blessing is actually a curse to them. The reality is, is that every good gift, though, and every perfect gift comes from the Father. That is what He does for us. Amen? We also see that the Father is compassionate. Psalms 103.13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. You guys know what compassion is? I'll admit, I actually had to look up what the word compassion means. This is something I've used my entire life, but never actually looked up the, the definition. I know what it means in practice, using it in a, you know, because I've heard it used. But compassion is seeing somebody else's struggles or pain or hardship and having sympathy for them, but not only that, wanting to alleviate the, the, the pain, the struggle that they're going through. That's what God has. God has compassion. God sees you. God sees what you're going through. God understands when you're hurting. God understands when you're struggling. And not only does He see it, but He sympathizes with you and He desires to make it right. He desires that. Because it says, as a father shows compassion to his children, if you're, if you're a father, you want the best for your kids. It says the Lord does the same thing. God does the same thing. The father is compassionate towards us. He doesn't want you to be in pain. He doesn't want you to be hurting. We also see that the, the Father is, is our comforter. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that, they may, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort from which we ourselves are comforted by God. Man, I picked a lot of tongue twister scriptures today. But we see the Father as our comforter. He's the one that comforts us in our time of need. Not only is He compassionate, not only does He want to, just does He sympathize, but want to and alleviate our suffering, but He also comes alongside of us in the midst of that stuff, suffering and struggles and pain, and He puts His arm around us and He comforts us and says, you're going to get through this. I'll be with you every step of the way. And not only that, He does that so that we're able to do that for others. So that we can comfort others with the same comfort that we've been given. And we can say, you know what, I've been there, but God will get you through. How do you know? Because God got me through. God made it so that I could make it through. So the, the Father is the one who comforts us. And one of the ones I said we'd talk about, he's the one who disciplines us. Nobody likes to talk about discipline. How many of you guys like discipline? Are you holding your hand up or are you just, I'm like, liar. You know, it's not okay to lie in church. But it wasn't a hand raise. She didn't lie. It was close. It says Hebrews 12.6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. Now you don't see it here, but if you read a little bit further in verse 9, you can see that this is actually specifically talking about the Father. Um, but discipline is something that, that good fathers, good parents do. Discipline is a good thing. That's why the Bible says, Don't spare the rod for your children. If you're not disciplining your children, if you're not keeping them in line, if you're not doing those things, you're actually failing your children. You're not helping them. You're not benefiting them. Even though it may seem like in the short term everything is hunky-dory, you're actually setting them up for failure in life. Discipline is a good thing. But it says here that God disciplines the one He loves and He chastises every son whom He receives. 
That means the discipline of God is reserved for his children. Now, this is something to keep in mind when we look at what's going on around us. Is that God disciplines his children. He doesn't discipline everybody. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, how do you become a child of God? John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, he believed in his name, and he gave the right to become children of God. So if you're born again, then you are a child of God. And the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he chastises every son, which means children, daughters too, are included here. So it says he disciplines his children. It doesn't say he disciplines everybody. So this is something that, that, that I want you to think about. When you look around you, and you're wondering what you're going through is discipline from the Lord, or it's something else, is it only happening to you? Or is it happening to everybody? Are Christians being disciplined by COVID-19? No, because it's happening to everybody. God doesn't discipline. If, if the same thing is happening to everybody, it's something else. It's not discipline. Now, I'm not saying that we don't bring stuff on ourselves. I'm not saying, I mean, there's all re kinds of reasons why stuff happens. One of the things that I think that's happening in our world right now is, is a, uh, a judgment of God is that he's just stepping back. And it turns out when God steps back, things go crazy. And there's a difference between judgment and discipline as well. But I'm specifically speaking of discipline here. If you're wondering if, you know, if, if, if you're thinking that God is somehow disciplining me by giving me cancer, well, other people get cancer. You're wrong. And he's not disciplining everybody. Not to mention there's all kinds of other scriptures that says that God wants you whole and healthy and healed. But that's something to think about. I want you to think about that when you're wondering, is God disciplining me or not? Is it happening to people that aren't children of God? Because the Lord only disciplines his children. And if it's happening to unbelievers, then it's not discipline. It might, not, might be something else, but it's not discipline, amen? Galatians 4, 4 through 7, we're going to talk about the different roles of the, of the Godhead as well. It says in Galatians 4, 4 through 7, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This is a great picture of how the Father organized and designed how mankind would be redeemed. If we look in this, we see that God set forth into motion a very complex series of events and actions and prophecies which ended up in the life and death of our Savior. God designed this. He planned this. He put it into motion. And we can see it here. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, which is one of the things He did, but born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, we begin to see the complexities, albeit in a very shorthand form here, but we start to see that there's complexities that happen. God designed a very intricate and complex plan of salvation, and it begins in the Old Testament. You begin to read and see that, that God was telling us about it from the very beginning through prophetic utterances from his prophets, from, from, from his people. We see it in the Old Testament. There are so many prophecies pointing towards Jesus and the salvation of men. And God is the one, God the Father is the one that put together this plan. And he sent out a son. And I love this passage because we see it, we see the Father 
sent forth his son. How do I know this is God the Father? Because he had a son. God the Father sent forth his son, which is Jesus. So that's the second person. And Jesus came and he redeemed us. So Jesus went ahead and he, he enacted God's plan, the Father's plan. And then after that, it says, uh, it says under the law, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son, the Holy Spirit. We see all three persons. He sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the, the executor, the applier of salvation to us. We see this, this, the differences in the persons of God, and not only who they are, but also their roles. We talked about this earlier. There's different roles and functions that each person of the Godhead plays, and we see this about the Father here. And one here in John 3, 16-18, it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You know, when we boil it down to the different roles, the Father's role was sending the Son. He created the plan and then he sent the Son. And God's love for us, as we've already talked about, was so great that he put together a plan that we could be redeemed so that we could have eternal comfort and spend eternity with him. And he did this by sending his son to die on the cross for us. And the awesome thing about it is, is that in order for us to receive this eternal comfort, in order for us to receive this salvation, we simply have to put our trust and believe in the name of the son. It says, whoever believes in him, speaking of Jesus, is not condemned. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It's not simply believing that he existed, but it's putting our trust and faith for him that he died to pay the penalty for your sins, and he rose again, giving you newness of life. And if you will believe in him, basically that he is who he says he is, and that he did what he said he, did, he, he would do, then you have the free gift of salvation. You have that eternal life. You have that eternal comfort that we are talking about. Shedding condemnation, shedding all of those things and entering into eternal life with Him. Amen? Does that give you guys a good idea of who God the Father is and how He's different from the Son and the Holy Spirit? Hallelujah. Let's go ahead and bow our heads. <clears throat> Let's see. And I know everybody in here and, and I believe that everybody in this room is saved but I still want to give the opportunity to all those who are listening online salvation is simple God loves you God the Father we've just been speaking about the Father the whole time he loved you so much that he created a plan of salvation so that all of your failures all of your mistakes all of your shortcomings all of your fallings would go ahead and be paid for by his son the reality is that there's nothing that you can do to become right with Jesus, to become right with God. There's nothing that you can do to redeem yourself because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we've all committed at least one sin and therefore are worthy of that wage, which is death. But God doesn't want you to die. God is compassionate. He cares about you. He loves you. So he made a plan that his son would come and he would pay that penalty for you that he would die the death that you should have died 
And then in doing so, you would be forgiven, you'd be free, and that you would be given a brand new life inside of you. And the only thing that you have to do that, as the Scripture still says up here, is believe in Him. And if you believe in Him, if you believe in the name of Jesus, that He is who He says He is, and He came to do what, what He said He did, then you receive by faith the free gift of salvation. It's simply trusting in Him. So this morning, if that's you and, and you want to take that time and, and just say a simple prayer, say, Father, uh, thank You for sending Your Son. I believe that He died for me and I believe that in Him I have newness of life. I now call Him my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. That's the simple prayer that you have to pray because it's not the words that save you, but it's the attitude of your heart. It's the believing in Jesus that saves you. And if that was you uh, listening to this and you, you, you uh, said that for the first time, you put your trust in Jesus, reach out to us and let us know. Send us an email, reply on this, this Facebook feed, whatever you have to do. Give me a call. The number's all online. And I just want to pray with you. I want to congratulate you. And we all want to rejoice with you because you've stepped out of death and into life. Amen. Everyone, let's stand to our feet.